0: Happy New Year's, everybody! I'm fully aware that it won't always be a new year when people are listening to this episode, but no matter what, you can always start a new year here with me in the show. It's just another day, so make the best of tomorrow, right? Today's autism topic was overwhelmingly requested by the listeners, so I do hope you guys enjoy it. Real quick, before I get into the guest introduction, I just want to inform all of my wonderful listeners out there that this podcast's popularity is absolutely snowballing right now. Like, last month beat every month before it combined for listeners, and just the two days so far that we've had in January have already beat the numbers from September, October, or November independently. The show has also now been listened to in more than 40 countries, which is exponentially growing if anyone out there has been keeping track. I'm blown away. I figured people were just tuning me out when I said things like share this show with your friends and family, but the numbers tell me I am absolutely wrong. But keep it up, and let's see if we can't get this dumb show to make a top listing page on Spotify or Apple by the end of the year. As a fun little reward from me to you, I'm going to be answering listener questions for the official episode 25 celebration that I believe is happening at the end of January... So submit a burning questions to dumbenoughpodcast at gmail.com. Over the next couple weeks, get those in, and I'll be sure to answer everything I get. Any hoosers? Today's guest is Toby Rates. She served as the executive director for the Autism Society of Oregon for over a decade now, as well as raising two boys who both have autism. She's also a great person, on top of literally all of that, and she let me record to my heart's content despite her tight schedule. I apologize right off the bat for some semi-rough audio. I was recording in a convention showroom, basically, over a fairly crowded network, and we had our guest mic blow out. And for some reason when I tried to balance the EQ to fix the muffled voice we were getting from the guest, who is obviously the most important person you came here to hear, what I ended up enhancing was the voice of, like, an HP Lovecraftian parrot in the latter half of the episode. If anyone recognizes what this bird is up to in the recording, I'd love to know which Eldritch god it was trying to summon during my interview. But ignoring that, let's reimagine the spectrum. the show, Toby rates of the Autism Society of Oregon.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
0: And I missed part of your title right there, right off the bat. You are the executive director.
1: Yeah, it sounds fancier than it is, but yes, I'm the executive director of the Autism Society of Oregon.
0: That's, I mean, that's quite fancy, especially compared to <laughs> humble podcast host.
1: <laughs> well, like I guess it, it, it sounds fancier than it is because that we have three full-time employees, including me, and then a wide network of volunteers throughout the state.
0: Oh, that's great. So why don't you give everybody just a little information about your organization and yourself and kind of why I brought you in as the expert.
1: Sure, sure. So the Autism Society of Oregon, we're a nonprofit organization. We are the state affiliate for the Autism Society of America, um, but we're very locally based. We have our own local governing board that determines everything. We raise all of our own funds and they all stay in Oregon. And we do some things in Southwest Washington too a common vision and goal of the Autism Society of America. The type of work we do, we have a brand new logo that just came out this week and a new tagline, and which I think really sums up well what we do. We help people make connections. We provide information about resources. We provide education, support. We do systems advocacy to help improve the lives of everyone who's autistic and the people and their loved ones. Um, We don't charge for any of our services. There's no membership fees. Um, We have a lot of different programs, a lot of information on our website. And I will take a second to tell people to, if they like more information, our website is autismsocietyoregon.org. So spell out Oregon, it's autismsocietyoregon.org. And then personally, um, I got into this because I have two children. They are both autistic. They're now 21 and 17. um, And they were diagnosed, oh, 15 years ago at this point. So I've I've been around autism a lot. I've seen a lot of changes. And um, it was through wanting to learn more about autism, wanting to learn more about services and supports that I got involved with ASO first as a volunteer And now for the last 10 years, I've been executive
0: director. Congratulations. And thank you very much for coming on the show. This was a very requested topic.
1: Okay. Well, I I hope I live up to the hype.
0: I'm sure you'll do great. So the first thing just to kind of talk about is autism and as we now kind of refer to it, the spectrum. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: What are they? Is there a difference? What is the difference?
1: Oh, interesting. Well. Autism is technically, the medical term is autism spectrum disorder. So it's all related. Um, And autism, as the name implies, is a spectrum disorder. Now, one thing that I try and make clear is that when people hear spectrum disorder, they sort of think number line. And, uh, you know, that you're a little bit more or a little bit less autistic, depending on where you land on this this line. And I think the... um, the DSM-5 kind of reinforces that because people are diagnosed as either level one, two, or three. But it's not like that. It's not like the level ones are less autistic, than the level threes, or whatever. This spectrum is really more, and I have a great um, visual of this that I obviously can't show on a podcast, but it's more like a, a circular rainbow, or think like a graphic equalizer, or even a buffet. That was a great metaphor someone had for me. You go through that buffet line as an autistic person and you get a little something different in your plate. And everyone's plate is different. That there there are different challenges and strengths within autism, within each autistic individual. And some people may have more communication differences. Um, Other people may have more challenges with executive functioning or with the sensory impacts and so forth. And so everyone's different. And you can be anywhere within this sort of circular spectrum or what's on your plate from the buffet and still be autistic. And also how you're able to function, what support you need changes, you know, from day to day. You know, If you're not feeling well, you're going to have less functional ability than if you, than if you haven't feeling well, if you slept well, if you're hungry. And then just throughout your life, I will say as the parent of two, Now, young adults, puberty changes everything. So that's a little bit of an explanation of what the autism spectrum is all about. The main takeaway is every autistic person is unique and different and really can't pigeonhole autistic people as, oh, well, I've met one autistic person, I know autism. The truism is when you've met one autistic person, you've met one autistic person you can't get past the fact that you need to interact with and understand each person as a unique individual.
0: Yeah, absolutely and the way you said that, you know, some days you'll just need more support. I mean, that could be true to all of us cuz when I yes. have I have the common cold, I am the biggest baby on the planet. So
1: <laughs> the the dreaded man cold. <laughs> yes,
0: the man cold <laughs> gather round children my time grows near. <laughs> yeah,
1: I mean and I, I mean that's why autism i think is very relatable in a lot of ways is that yes everyone has their good and bad days and obviously it's different with autistic individuals because what constitutes a bad day can be radically radically different but yes you know it's it's not stagnant it's not you know this is how you are functioning and this is how you always function it's going to change hour by hour yeah
0: so inside of this autism spectrum There are subcategories of things like Asperger's. Mm. Is there a lot of subcategories or is it kind Mm. of, it comes down to a couple major?
1: It used to be separate diagnoses for say autism and Asperger's or Rett syndrome, which we were talking about a little bit before. Now it's all under the same umbrella. It's all under the umbrella of autism spectrum disorder. A lot of people still like to use the terminology of, say, Asperger's, although that's become very controversial lately with some of the revelations about Dr. Asperger's alleged collaboration with the Nazis back in Austria in the 30s. So that's definitely become less enticing for people to use. But they're all subsumed under the umbrella of autism spectrum disorder rather than being separate diagnoses. And... You know, I think it's good and bad. Uh, I know with Asperger's, I get a lot of questions about, well, what is the difference between autism and Asperger's? And subsuming so it under autism spectrum disorder makes it clear, well, there really isn't any Or you have Asperger's autistic. But it also, in a practical sense, has made it harder in some ways, just for some And I'm thinking particularly of parents here, sometimes it is easier for them to hear Asperger's than autism and and easier for them to accept that. But hopefully that's working its way through the language.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So there is, it seems like, a wide range, kind of a wide timeline in which a child can be diagnosed with autism. Uh, Is that fairly common to anywhere from? (laughs) A year up to you know, like you said, your your children at five years old.
1: Well, actually, the range is much much broader than that. For my children specifically, one was diagnosed at age four and a half, one was diagnosed at age two and a half, oh. um, and they are very very different in how they present. But I mean, we have I just spoke with with someone the other day who was recently diagnosed, he's sixty six years old. Wow. Oh. So yeah, um, and especially. You know, I think it's getting better now, but and there's been a big push for early diagnosis, but it's still, it's a hard process to get an autism diagnosis. There's a year's waiting list at, you know, here in Oregon at the OHSU, at the CDRC clinic, and like of many things, COVID has made it worse because the major diagnostic tool called the ADOS um, is not set up to be used under social distancing rules, so that's, created even more of a backlog and and with diagnosing autism it's not like there's a blood test just at this point it's all based on observation so it's usually a multidisciplinary team you know four different professionals who are evaluating this person by observing them over a full day and we're talking you know usually in these cases it's it's young children so it, it's intensive and then we have people who because you know, the, the diagnostic criteria changed back in 94. And on, before that, a lot of people either were not diagnosed at all or were misdiagnosed, often with childhood schizophrenia. But there's a lot of people who were born before 1994 and who had not had the benefit of an autism diagnosis. So you're seeing people who are diagnosed much later in life. And it is not uncommon. It's almost become a cliche that oftentimes when a child is diagnosed, particularly an older child, um, who may not have as many support needs. And and so it's kind of gone under the radar until about age eight or 10 or so where social things get a lot more difficult. But oftentimes when a child is diagnosed, all of a sudden the parent starts to say, you know what, That actually, that sounds like me too. And you have parents who then look into and yeah, <laughs> you know, the, the medical professionals agree. <laughs> So, it's, it's not unusual for people to be diagnosed much later in life, past childhood. Um, it's also, you know, related to um, women tend to be diagnosed later, with people identifying as female, because a lot of the ways they present are not classically autistic. They may be more social than, a, than an evaluator would think is appropriate to, for an autism diagnosis. And then you just have folks who don't have access to diagnostics. you know whether it's social economic factors language factors if the family does not speak english as their first language and uh, geographic factors um, being in rural areas it's harder to access a diagnostic center in the portland area if you live in ontario oregon which is five hours away
0: so in talking about some of these you know diagnostic tests and some of the other things they look for, what are kind of the most common signs or symptoms that someone would be autistic?
1: Well, the definition of autism is that there are differences in communication, which runs the gamut from people who are completely non-speaking. So my younger son, who's 17, is completely non-speaking. He doesn't have any spoken language whatsoever. He does so he was a pretty easy case <laughs> to figure out. Um, he does understand some language and he does communicate in a nonverbal way. Um, but then you have runs again to people who are fully verbal and so that that oftentimes there's a difficulty with nonverbal communication with body language and that sort of thing, which can create huge, lack of communication and miscommunication because the nonverbal communication is really something like 70% of what's being communicated even when you're speaking verbally. So there are differences in communication. Um, there are also differences in social interaction. And this is really to me related to the communication barriers that if you're not picking up social cues. If you're not picking up nonverbal communication, if you're not picking up body language, tone, that sort of thing, you're missing a lot of information. And it makes social interaction difficult. And sometimes it's difficult enough that people are no longer interested in social interaction. It's just been too painful. You also see a lot of self-stimulating behavior. It's called stims. And that's, you know, like the kind of the um, stereotypical things you see with autism, of of flapping or rocking back and forth, or can even be a verbal stim, so repeating things, even making sounds. Those tend to be ways that autistic people are interacting with their environment, resolving anxiety, dealing with sensory inputs that are overwhelming. You know, our view is unless a stim is harmful to the person or to others, let them have it. It may, it may be weird, it may be annoying, but it's helping that person. And you're not gonna like the behavior that replaces it if you force them to stop. And then there are also um, routines, are a, a real rigidity and a, and a need for routine. And like, I like to say, you know, autistic people are just like other people, but more so. You know, every young child benefits from a routine and set expectations. For an autistic person, it's absolutely necessary. And one way I look at it is that when you're autistic and you're not picking up on a lot of communication, the world is a very confusing place. So having routines, set patterns, it helps the world make sense. And then when those routines are disrupted, all of a sudden the world doesn't make sense again. And that's really distressing. And then finally, there are the sensory impacts. Every autistic person has a sensory processing disorder. It's part of the diagnosis, but it doesn't go the other way. People can have sensory processing disorder and not be autistic, but every autistic person is processing sensory input differently from non-autistic people. And also, you know, and it's not the same for every autistic person. You can be Oversensitive to sensory input. So, you know, overwhelmed by lights or noise, by touch, that sort of thing. Or you can be undersensitive, what we call a sensory seeker, where you're not getting enough sensory input. So you're seeking out like deep pressure hugs and, and trying to get that sensory input. And that can vary from sense to sense. So you can be undersensitive in some senses and oversensitive in others. And that's also what makes autism so individualized. So those are are some of the basics. (laughs)
0: Yeah. And you have me, the whole time you're explaining this, I'm like, boy, it makes me think of every time I completely missed a joke or the way Mm -hmm. I like jostle my leg, just like every other millennial out there does. Um, (laughs) I'm like, oh, no, I'm doing it. I'm doing it right now.
1: And see, that doesn't necessarily make you autistic but it helps to maybe have some empathy for autistic people. Because that's one of my pet peeves, honestly, that there is this idea that autistic people aren't empathetic. And, you know, some are, some aren't, just like any other population. Some people are so overly empathetic that they kind of shut down. But I really feel strongly that there is not nearly enough empathy provided to autistic individuals who are going through the day with a variety of sensory assaults, with not under, you know, confused and not picking up the same information that the rest of us sort of take for granted and how difficult that is. And that, you know, non-autistic people often called neurotypicals, you know, with our vaunted empathy, just expect autistic people to be able to navigate a world that's not set up for them as easily as we do for a world that is set up for us. So I think that a little bit of empathy could go an enormous way.
0: Absolutely. As I said earlier, I had a lot of listeners that requested this. And so anecdotally, I had a question related to several of them when I was talking to them, had explained, like, I didn't see it coming. I didn't see this diagnosis because up to, you know, a year old, my child was meeting all of the benchmarks and they were walking on time and they were, you know, recognizing Mm -hmm. things on time. Is there a reason like do we just develop something around that one two-year mark that
1: well it's at that one or two year mark that's when you know and, and I want to be clear: I'm a parent <laughs> not a, a therapist or a trained medical professional but that's when you know I've had plenty of parents say to me you know I knew from the moment I first held my baby that something was different about this child and then I've had plenty of people say you know my child was was developing and in what seemed like a normal way until, boom, around age two, two and a half, everything changed. And really, that is a a big developmental shift and occurs at those ages. And that's when you start to notice. So, for example, my younger son seemed to be developing typically, but at around age one, I knew enough to be concerned that he wasn't pointing. He did not point to things and and share that with me. And that can be a a thing called theory of mind which is controversial but basically the idea is unlike a lot unlike a typically developing child who's going to want to point out to mommy what they saw in his mind if he saw it I saw it so he didn't need to point it out. And then around age two when vocab you know speaking and vocabulary and those sorts of things. For some children it's not apparent until like I say later ages like for a lot of people who identify as as female, it's middle school, because that's when the social interaction gets so much more difficult and challenging and complex. So I think it's not so much that something changed within the child when they reach certain ages, like one or two, but developmentally more is expected. And that's when you start to see the differences.
0: As far as diagnosis goes, are there are any pushes in the community or in the science that kind of say we want to diagnose earlier or we'd like to diagnose later?
1: It, it depends. I have heard from different parents that you know their child was certainly exhibiting signs at an early age, but the medical community said, you know, we want to wait until they're older because it, you know, it can be fairly minute differences, particularly when a, a child is little. And it can also be, um, autism is considered a developmental delay. Sometimes you just need a little extra time to develop and it can be hard, particularly when a child is young to know whether, you know, this is autism or is this simply a developmental delay due to other factors. So sometimes you need a little bit more time to be sure. Like with my younger son, when he didn't start talking, uh, at about 18 months, I started pushing. for for some type of uh, evaluation and they kept putting me off because you know boys talk later and so forth and so on and by age two i was like no (laughs) we need something but the first thing they did of course was a hearing test to which they actually had to put him under to do because he wasn't compliant because you know that you know if he's not talking is there a physical reason for that is there a structural reason and then you go on and cross things off the list and keep going but um i do know i think the the lower age limit is about 18 months where they can and depending on the child that feel it you know can make an accurate diagnosis and all the way on up you know like i said i know people in their 60s and 70s are getting autism diagnoses
0: it's very interesting just because of the ways that it can like you said impact certain aspects of your life and not the others you know like child has complete motor function there's yeah. absolutely nothing wrong with a motor function and then one day you realize they don't talk
1: and you're like oh <laughs> well, it kind of becomes clear <laughs>
0: yeah you're like oh that's yeah. actually something
1: yeah well you know my my younger son yeah he doesn't have any gross or fine motor skill delays as a matter of fact they're probably too good because he's breaking all kinds of stuff in my house but um <laughs> <laughs> you know and he also like One of the the things you may hear about with autistic people is not a lot of autistic people don't like to make eye contact and that goes back to communication that I've been told by some autistic adults that it's too overwhelming when you're trying to process language to also look at someone's eyes because it's too much information coming in and it can even be physically painful. Well, my younger son has no problems making eye contact. He's he's learned that that tends to get him what he wants. He makes eye contact and smiles real cute. And I think it's because he's really not processing that much language, so it doesn't bother him. <laughs> but that would be sort of a, oh, was he, how can he be autistic? He's making eye contact. Well, that's just the way it works for him.
0: Yeah. Entirely different person to person. Yeah. And that's very interesting. Does autism develop more often across a gender line?
1: Um, It's more often diagnosed across a gender line. Something like five times more people who identify as boys are diagnosed than people who identify as girls. Anecdotally, that sort of seems to be catching up a bit um, as more people, as diagnosticians, are more aware that autism can present very differently in females than in males but there is is still far more diagnosis of, of people who identify as males than females
0: yeah we had just this interesting briefly before we you know came on and started recording I had brought up RETS because someone had brought it up and it's oddly seems swayed the other direction yeah
1: yeah RETS is part of the umbrella of autism spectrum disorder it's to my understanding, it. Uh, genetic based, like fragile X is also genetically based part yeah. of autism spectrum disorder. But RETS is only in females, is my understanding. As far as I understand, it, it's not a very common diagnosis within the autism spectrum disorder umbrella. But yeah, that is one of the few places where you see that diagnosis only in females.
0: Yeah. Do you see that kind of differentiation in any other aspect of life, do you see it? You know, socioeconomically, is it more likely oh, oh. if you're oh. uh, lower or middle class or even upper class? That
1: well, let's put it this way: autism is an equal opportunity disorder, difference, whatever you want to call it. However, in terms of access to diagnosis and supports, sure, that tends to cut across socioeconomic. Barriers, racial barriers, language barriers, and geographic barriers. So, sort of the, the stereotypical autistic person is a young white male from a family, you know, with higher socioeconomic standing. You know, oftentimes you know, the joke is engineers, <laughs> you know, computer folks. But that's really based more on who has access. To getting a diagnosis and getting supports and services. Autism itself, there you know, all the studies have shown it cuts across all social and economic status, all races, ethnicities, um, and the geographic location, as well as like I can say language can be a huge barrier. When when the family's first language is not English, it can create a huge barrier and culturally also to getting a diagnosis for, for a person.
0: So I'm, I'm going to make a a logic jump and make a statement that is trademark dumb for me, but it sounds like, you know, if you looked at a map and you said, oh, well, the U S has a much higher percentage of autistic citizens that may just be because if you're comparing it to a third world country, there is no access to that kind of testing or diagnosis.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's lots of data out there that certain countries have higher, diagn- higher rates of autism than others. And yeah, oftentimes that seems to be more tied to access to diagnosis and cultural norms than to whether autism is actually present more in certain countries than others. I mean, there's also, I think we talked briefly about this, you know, there's questions about causation, about whether... You know, pollution, for example, it, it can be a factor. As an organization, we don't really get into causation. We're here to help autistic people and their loved ones. We are. We don't get drawn into the arguments about causation because it's it's not really helpful. And that that's not our role. We we don't. We're not scientists. We're not medical researchers. But yeah, you know, it, it may be that there are some differences related to like is it pollution or, or other factors but right now i don't know for sure
0: sure and one day i'll get an environmentalist on and maybe i'll remember <laughs> this this conversation to ask a question to them but yeah so i was going to break just the rest of the episode because i had a lot of listener questions.
1: Okay, <laughs> so i was going to, to answer them.
0: <laughs> I was going to break away from anything else i had to to focus more on the audience questions. Okay. So the first one i had come up and pardon me while i break eye contact in our zoom meeting to look <laughs> to read this. No worries. The first one, what kind of resources are out there for a parent who is a parent of a autistic child?
1: So I'm sorry, is the parent autistic as well in the question or just a a parent of an autistic child?
0: Just the way I asked the question. Um, The child in question is autistic. What kind of resources exist for them?
1: It's going to vary state to state. I can talk most authoritatively about Oregon, so that's what I will do. And first of all, we have a webinar that we do every month on Wednesday evenings. I believe it's from 7.30 to 9.00. And of course, it's free all about what resources are available within Oregon. And, and um, it's on our website and, you know, please feel free to sign up for that. And it's a lot of information. So, you know, we tell people attend as many times as you want. That's why we do it as a recurring monthly webinar. Um, and we always provide Spanish translation as well. But, um, so basically the resources start with the federal government, assuming there's a diagnosis. One is SSI, which is part of the social security. Um, It's for a child with a disability, but it hinges on also the parents' income and assets, which uh, there's a very low cutoff. The one good thing about SSI is that it's federal. So if the family moves, you know, they are approved for SSI in Missouri and they move to Montana, that SSI is going to follow them. Within Oregon, there's also developmental disability services, which is under our Department of Human Services. And every state pretty much has a similar thing, but what's provided is gonna vary from state to state. In Oregon, you must have a medical diagnosis in order to be eligible. And they will do an adaptive assessment, which is looking at functioning ability of the person. And it's for children and adults. So basically they're looking to see if you're impacted enough by autism to be eligible for services. And if you are, there's a wide range of services through Medicaid. So I, as an adult, they have to be eligible for Medicaid. As a child, there's a waiver that allows the child to be eligible for Medicaid, even if the parent's income is too high. And that gets very complex. So I won't go into all those services, but they, it's under what's called the K plan, which very few states have, but it's, it's been an enormous help, I will say, as a parent here in Oregon. And then there's educational services. Now, in Oregon, in order to access educational services through the schools, there has to be an educational identification, which is different from a medical diagnosis. So it's a separate thing. What's nice about it is there's no cost and there's an actual time limit. They have to have it completed within 60 school days after parents give consent. So that's 60 days when school is in session. So not summer break, not spring break, those those days don't count, but they also, in addition to determining that the child meets the criteria for autism, they also have to determine that the child's that due to the disability due to autism, the child is unable to access their education without accommodations and modifications. So it's a, a two step requirement. But that's how you access things like an IEP and special education services. And then there are community supports, um, groups like the Autism Society of Oregon and other groups that are here to provide, you know, we provide support groups, we provide webinars, we have a lot of information on our website, we do events, and we also have two really popular programs called Take a Break and Take a Breather. And they are, what it sounds like to help people sort of relax and recharge. Take a break is for parents of autistic kids. Um, we pay for them to basically have an evening out, to do dinner and a movie, and we'll pay for someone to watch the kids in the household. Um, and then take a breather is for autistic adults ages 16 and up. It's up to $100 to do whatever will, will help them relax and recharge. So that's kind of a quick and dirty overview of what's available. Yeah, and but the main thing is it varies from state to state, which can be really frustrating.
0: I definitely can understand the frustration in that. I'm glad that there are services out there and that there's organizations like yours that are, you know, trying to do the right thing and stepping forward and taking up some of that slack that could otherwise be covered. So thank and also you. We
1: <laughs> collaborate with lots of with all kinds of organizations throughout the state because no one, you know, nonprofit can do it all. And I didn't, because the question was specific to parents, I didn't go in too much to services and supports that are available for adults. But I will say quickly that there are developmental disability services are available for, for all ages throughout Oregon. And then there's also supports for um, through vocational rehabilitation services or voc rehab to help people with disabilities find and keep appropriate employment. So that's an employment-based service that is through the state of Oregon.
0: Yeah. I do know that the question comes up later in my list, as I was writing it earlier, that there is a question, you know, what is the child's life as they grow into an adult? And then resources okay. available.
1: Um, in, in terms of, you know, what the child's life will be like is going to depend so much on the child. So for example, and I use my son's, my older son, who's now 21 and has graduated high school, he has very minimal support needs. He is, like I said, fully verbal. Um, he's always been at or above grade level in terms of academics. He actually supports himself with his own YouTube channel. And I'll give him a quick shout out because I kind of feel like I, as long as I shout out about his channel, I can talk about him. Absolutely. He, his YouTube channel is called Kanubis, which is K H And then it's A-N-U-B-I-S, which is the Egyptian god that looks like a dog. So it's Anubis plus K-H in front of it. And it's all about social sciences. And he has about 150,000 subscribers on YouTube. He's been doing it for 10 plus years. and He's only 21. Um, But yeah, it's a really neat channel. So, you know, he has, you know, his, what life is like for him as an adult. And he is very different than what it's going to be like for his brother. So, my older son does not have any support services in place, you know, besides the typical mom and dad. My younger son, on the other hand, who's 17 now, um, as he becomes an adult, he is in the 12th grade. He is in a self-contained classroom or focused classroom, so he's very, he's not really in general education classes, except for things like art, <laughs> you know, the music. He will get us some sort of a certificate of completion when he finishes 12th grade. And then he will go into what's called a community transition program, which is also through the school district. And they'll uh, concentrate on, you know, life skills, community access and employment skills. And he can avail himself of that until he's 21. He currently has developmental disability services. As a child, he will transfer into adult developmental DD services. And two of the biggest changes there in Oregon are that, one, once he turns 18, we as his parents can actually be paid providers for him. Generally, there's a difference for COVID, but generally, parents of minor children can't be paid providers. So that's a huge difference. He also will have the choice between staying with a county caseworker or going to what's called a support services brokerage. Which um, so is just a difference in, in same, same um, services, but a difference in how they're received. And then, of course, you know, there'll be much more emphasis on employment and, and long-term skills for him. But once he turns 21, any educational services through the school district go away. Yeah, he's done. Oh, and the other difference is once he turns 18, he will be eligible for SSI, which is about $800 a month based on his own income and assets, which, are, of course, considerably lower than his parents.
0: Yes, yes absolutely. <laughs> Understandably, too. So yes. mine, <laughs> as an 18-year-old, much lower. <laughs> Let's see. I had a whole lot of questions. What could parents do to help their child learn better?
1: Oh, interesting. Well, the best advice I ever got as a parent of autistic kids is you don't really need to know all about autism. It's nice to have a general grounding, but what you really need to know to learn is all about your child. And for many autistic people, like I said, verbal communication sometimes doesn't exist, but even when it does exist, it's oftentimes not the preferred way of communicating and oftentimes one of the first skills to go when someone is stressed or not functioning at their best. So rather than trying to sit down and talk about things, the best way to learn about your child is by observing. Behavior is communication, and the way we listen is by observation. So observing them carefully, seeing, you know, what calms them down, what triggers them, how do they learn best? Are they an auditory learner, or are they a visual learner? My younger son is very, very visual. My older son is is more auditory. So, really, and I'm not quite sure how to put this, setting up a world and an environment that works for your child. You can take a child and try and force them into the world that's out there. It's like they say, you know, you can take a round, a square peg and try and force it into a round hole, but it's going to take an enormous amount of effort and it's going to damage that peg. So it's much, much better if you can find a square hole for that square peg and, and create an environment that caters to their abilities and really works well for them, rather than trying to force them into a world that doesn't work for them.
0: That absolutely makes sense. As you said, you know, when you were talking about trying to find the right thing for them, I immediately went to the, you know, round hole square peg example. Yeah, yeah. And then you said just, it I and I was like, what? she's psychic. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, a lot of Parents, I think, feel like, okay, this child's got to exist in the world as it is. We've got to toughen them up. We've got to make them work in this world. And my, and I'm certainly not the first person who came up with this, but my point of view is, no, this world is not set up for them and it doesn't work for them. Let's create an environment that does work for them. You know, they don't have to be, they're not like everyone else and they don't have to be.
0: Yeah, and it sounds like, you know, good advice for anyone that's listening and looked away or, you know, stopped to check the traffic as they're driving, uh, you know. <laughs>
1: please drive carefully.
0: Please drive carefully. <laughs> you know, just taking in that, are they an auditory learner? Are they a visual learner? Do they need to get hands-on? Do they need to be hands-off? You know, what Damn. really speaks to your child? Are they able to, you know, things like...
1: Are, Oftentimes breaks are important, but the the child may not know how to ask for them or may not recognize with it themselves. So, you know, we had one teacher who was fantastic that he could see what he called the rumblings (laughs) and that my son was, was starting to get agitated or, or just needed a break. And, you know, to make sure to offer that offering a break is, is not giving in or, you know, we had, one little story tangent with my younger son he was in his classroom which like I said is special ed classroom and they were doing some work on something or another and he asked with sign language for food and because he wanted a treat he, he's, he's a good eater um and they were like oh let's just do a couple more well, and he's a, he's a pretty laid back kid, so he went along with it. But then all of a sudden, did a couple more. And then he jumps up and he pushed one of the teachers. Well, then they realized, oh, okay, he's discombobulated. Let's give him a granola bar. Yeah. And I was like, and they were telling me about it because they couldn't figure it out. And then later on, he pushed a kid. And, I was, and he's not an aggressive person. And I was like, do you realize what you just taught him? That if he asks for food the way he's been taught to, he doesn't get it. But if he does something like push someone, he gets what he requested. So you've just taught him that the way to request food is to push a teacher. Yeah. So so let's go back and retrain him that if he asks for food, he gets it right away. There's no making him work for food. He's asked, he gets his request met, and then he learns to trust that he will get his request met.
0: Well, and that's to speak you know, to what you said earlier, which is having a good regiment and having, um, solid guidelines in yeah, place, things that are, things that are routine, you know, you always have a cause and effect, you know, he asked for food, he did not get it like that broke the routine and now there's a problem. well
1: and he wanted it and he figured out a way to get it and now he's learned this is how i get food not by asking which is the way we want to teach him (laughs) but by creating a disturbance hey that worked great (laughs) and we see that also with you know i hear from parents who are like well my child's been having you know behavioral issues at school and they keep sending him home which is creating havoc with me trying to work and get money to raise these children and you know we talk a lot about that is not appropriate. What, what the child is learning is, if I, to get home, I need to act like this. And most children would rather be home than at school. So, you know, if a child acts in a way that the school, that, that is inappropriate, <laughs> and that then that therefore gets them sent home, which is, then they've learned, hey, this is how I get to go home. So you know what needs to happen is they need to use their resources to figure out why the child is behaving this way, what's causing that, what's the function of that behavior, and then how the adults should respond to it effectively.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Dead-on advice. <laughs> it actually led really interestingly to the next question as I was looking down trying to prepare myself. Sure. The next question was, how would you approach trying to introduce new foods to a very picky eater?
1: Oh, that is, you know, there are feeding specialists who deal with that. The picky eater is usually a sensory issue that, um, for example, my younger boy, he loves crunchy food. So he loves chips and he loves that sort of thing, but he also loves raw vegetables you know, he's the only person I've ever seen eat a raw Brussels sprout, for example. Yeah. (laughs) um, and, And feeding issues can be extremely complex, ranging from, you know, simply a picky eater, which is what I was, to, you know, having physical barriers to actually eating that food, to having a gag reflex. You know, I know a lot of people don't, It's the texture. They can't handle the texture. So I know some, and I would really be working with a feeding specialist, depending on, you know, if this is first looking into deciding, is this simply a picky eater or is this a manifestation of their disability and you need an expert to help you? And, you know, they're covered by insurance usually and Medicaid. But, you know, I know a lot of people work with placing the food in front of the child and going very, very slowly having them touch it, moving slowly to having them sniff it, um, having them, you know, maybe take a lick you know, and, and moving slowly and at the child's pace without overwhelming the child. I will say if it truly is not due to autism and they're simply a picky eater, taste change. And, and that's the other thing, just giving it some time. If, as long as they're getting basic nutrition, and you know, as long as they're not malnourished, as long as, you know, we're not looking at scurvy or something. Um, and I and I know plenty of families that that supplement with things like insure for children who are, you know, 10, 12 years old and older. But my feeling with my kids was, and lucky they, they weren't it wasn't, you know, to a, a level of where we needed expert help, um, letting them kind of grow out of it, you know, making sure they for some kids, it's simply a developmental thing. And, and like with me, you know, I now love vegetables. As a child, I ate too. <laughs> You know, and if, if the green beans touch the applesauce, neither one could be eaten. And some of that deals with it on them, themselves. But if it's related to the autism, you may need some professional help with that and try really, really hard not to let it become a power play issue. Is that's one of the few things that a child has autonomy over is what they put in their mouth and what they are willing to eat. So maybe the first step is kind of taking a step back and realizing what you're dealing with. Is it a power issue? Is it a sensory issue? Is it just a kid being a picky eater? And how far do you want to take it down those roads? And I should say, or is it you know sort of a life and death nutritional issue? You know, because we we do have kids who are on um, feeding tubes and GI tubes, and that creates a whole different level.
0: Yeah, that absolutely does. Once you have a, you know, a medical necessity to intervene, definitely changes the ballgame.
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's a whole different (laughs) ballgame. But if it's sort of, I'd like to see them eating more foods, that might be a very different issue than this child is not getting the nutrition that they need to survive.
0: So just really slow introduction.
1: <laughs> yeah, that tends to help a lot. And, you know, not letting it become a power struggle with your child, because they're going to win that one. Yeah. Unless, unless you're going to force feed them, they're going to win that one. <laughs> and very few parents are going to force feed their children, I would hope.
0: Sure. Yeah, I wouldn't think so, but
1: <laughs> you know, there's
0: know. always one. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah.
0: Let's see how could you find ways to help your child cope better with things like bath time or haircuts?
1: Oh gosh. Well, haircuts. Yeah. I'll start with that one. Um, first of all, both of those are generally related to sensory issues. We do have on our website, um, autismsocietyoregon.org. We have a resource directory. And one of the um, categories is haircuts. You know, the, the, people obviously don't get certificates in, you know, giving haircuts to autistic people, but there are some people who sort of specialize, who do a better job than others. You're looking for someone who's calm, who will take their time, and you can, you know, do their best to to set the child at ease. Um, You want to go at a time when your child is doing well. I mean, if they're already, you know, at their limits, they're not going to have it's called tokens to, to handle that so you want to get them at a time when they've got enough tokens to spend on that and it's oftentimes better to go at a quiet time of the day if you go on a saturday afternoon and there's 18 kids running around screaming that's going to be really hard i know i made the mistake when my sons were little of taking them to actually a, you know, a child haircut place and there was just so much going on with all the other kids running around and the different videos playing it was way too that's not what they needed. So really think about what your child needs. Also think about, you know, one of my sons, he would, was willing to have his hair cut, he did not like it, but he absolutely refused the clippers, which is the sort of the razory thing. So he would only allow scissors you know, what works. And, and, you know, the thing is, he kind of had a hairy neck even as a little kid and they, they were desperate to use the clippers on him. It was like, nope, he won't be able to handle that. Um,
0: not so enough tokens in the
1: world. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Know your child, know what they can handle. Um, reduce the number of haircuts as possible by getting them cut as, as short as possible. And then, you know, honestly, after a while with my son who was not comfortable with haircuts, was when he was about nine or ten years old, we let him grow his hair out. you know then it became an issue of making sure that he, he kept it clean and combed and that sort of thing. But you know, we sidestepped that issue by saying, if it's you know after after years of dealing with it, maybe this isn't something that I need to push on. And, and as a result, he's had long hair ever since. And it, you know in Oregon, it's okay. <laughs>
0: Yeah, nobody minds here
1: kind of picking yeah. your battles <laughs>
0: yeah so it sounds like a lot of these you know in is... the
1: bathtub i'm sorry yes. you didn't answer sorry. that part of the question i <laughs> forgot um you know once again determining what is causing the issue is it the temperature of the water is it the running water would a bath be better than a shower or vice versa are there other ways to clean the child would would a um, a dry shampoo be better than a regular you know shampoo and so forth. Um, keeping their hair short can help with shortening that shampoo time. Um, but really trying to, getting away from should, you know, the child should be able to do this and they should have a shower every day or whatever it is. Working with what works for the child. To, and honestly to make the parent's life easier. There's a lot of things to argue about. And if you can pick those battles and decide rather than what is the expectation, as a should, what is actually possible. Yeah,
0: that makes a lot of sense. I was having my own tangent thought there, which was broken away from the listener questions. A lot of these sound like they hit the higher end of the too much sensory input. Is it more common to have a child that is sensitive to too much stimulation than under sensitive?
1: I don't know which one is more common to be honest, but I do know that I, I have but my sense are very different in terms of one is overwhelmed by sensory input, the other is a sensory seeker. And I will tell you the sensory seeker is in many ways much easier. Nothing bugs that child. He's happy to get haircuts, he you know, he'll stand in the shower getting red as a lobster. Nothing bugs him. <laughs> and it. And and it can go too far. We were actually having this discussion a little earlier in that he doesn't register pain. Oh. So like um, my unders- my younger son, he broke his arm when he was about seven or eight years old. And we didn't realize it at first. We thought he just wanted to go to bed early and maybe wasn't feeling good. But he woke up the next morning and his arms just dangling out his side and He's perfectly fine with that. <laughs> like, no, 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 no. You had two working arms yesterday. They both need to be working. You know, um, he doesn't always register pain, and he doesn't even when he is in pain. It's not he can't always ex- let us know where what's painful for him. But in general, you know, you don't run into the issues with haircuts and bathtubs where. You have a child who is a sensory seeker and under stimulated. It's only for the kids who are overstimulated that tends to be an issue.
0: Gotcha. It reminded me of someone else as they were telling me the story that I just learned that they had a child that was autistic. They were saying they got the best advice they had ever received when the kid was very young and they were bringing him through the store and they were a young mother and they Mm -hmm. said, their child just had too much just you know broke down had this whole fit she was crying and didn't know how to cope with Mm -hmm. it and she said this you know this stranger just like an angel out of nowhere swept (laughs) in and just started like she's like what's your child's name and then just started pointing at things on the shelf and just said what is this like what's this specific thing well, what about this specific thing? And just like directing them to very fine points, you know, in and around where they were. And she said from that point on, she never had a problem bringing her son in to the grocery store because she would just talk through as they went down aisles, like, what is this next thing?
1: Something to focus
0: on. Yeah, and Um, that input kind of tweaked his his ability to be in public. (laughs)
1: Interesting. So that's called, you know, when he's, when the child is overwhelmed and, and out of fit, as you say, that's called a meltdown. And that is very different from a tantrum, although it can look the same. Um, a meltdown is, is when the person is overwhelmed and no longer has the ability to explain that. And they're explaining in the only way they know how, which is crying, screaming, whatever they're doing, that they are overwhelmed. And usually once a meltdown starts, it's kind of a spiral. And there's not too much you can do about it, but sort of let that storm pass. Um, It sounds like this person, you know, and it worked for this child. And it's certainly a technique to try. It may not work for every person or every child. But, you know, getting that child to focus on something small and tangible, concrete right there, let them get away from focusing on everything that was overwhelming them. So that was a great idea. We have cards that we give out for free that talk about, you know, there's like the size of a business card, but it sort of talks about what autism is and how to help. And we give them out to to parents and say, look, you know, when you're in public, when you're having a rough time, when there's a meltdown going on, you don't always have the time to explain (laughs) what's going on. Give people a card. it it helps them. And a lot of times, you know, this woman intervening was a godsend. But sometimes people want to help and they're making things worse. And you're, you know, you're trying to focus on your child and you're having to explain to someone else what's going on. So, you know, what we generally say is let the parent deal with it or the caregiver, whoever it is, if they need your help, you know, ask for help, absolutely help out. But, And it sounded like this young mom was just totally overwhelmed. And, and that person helping out was a godsend and it worked, which is great. A lot of times you get a lot of judgment from other parents. And that is not helpful when you're in the midst of a meltdown. Um, Another thing we do, we have an autism walk. um, And we have three different autism walks in Oregon at this point. But at each of our autism walks, we give out t-shirts. And it's got a different picture on it every year. That's determined by a contest. But, you know, it says the Autism Society of Oregon. And the reason we do that and what I tell people is, you know, if you know you're going to be in a situation that's difficult, put the Autism Society t-shirt on. If your child won't wear it, you wear yours. It, It just, autism is an invisible disability. And it gives people a clue that there is something else going on here than the usual assumption is the child is a brat or the parent is a lousy parent. This, this gives, what I tell people is it gives people an opportunity to be kind and to understand that there's, there's autism at work and not simply a tantrum. Right.
0: This is, this isn't necessarily my parenting. It's the situation we have found ourselves in.
1: Yeah. You know, you can, you can, be, and it can be hard as a parent, like I say, all the judgments you get. I was lucky that I'm an older parent and um, maybe had a thicker skin. And, and But there there were still times when it was painful that, that people are judging you and your child. And you just kind of learn to to ignore that and focus on what you need to focus on as a parent. But it can be a hard. Um, it can be hard.
0: Yeah, I can get that. The next one may be a little more interesting how do you make something fun and i think this kind of plays on like you know a lot of again anecdotally information from what i've heard a lot of autistic children have a hard time you know finding like a, an interest that makes something fun
1: um actually the, the problem tends to be is that what the autistic child finds fun is not necessarily what a typically developing child would find fun fun or what a parent thinks the child should find as fun. Um, it's all about letting the child's interest dictate what's fun to them. Many autistic children do not play with toys in the way that the toy is expected to be played with. But if they're enjoying it, you know, a couple of my nephews loved a lot, you know, rather than playing with a little matchbox card, they loved to line them up, I called it the traffic jam. Um, and it really goes to their need for routine and order. But then that's how we like to play with the toy level play with a toy like that. A lot of autistic people, including children, have very special, uh, very specialized and focused interests. The joke is the interests are an inch wide and a mile deep. So my older son, you know, when he was little, was th- and Thomas the Tank Engine was a big, big driver. Anything with, with wheels, planes, trains, automobiles, he loved that. And then he got into ancient Egypt, and then he got into dinosaurs. And then that, that led to evolution and future evolution, where things will look like 100 million years in the future, and then all sorts of science-based things, and astro- astronomy and so forth. You know, those were never things that might have captured my interest, but I've learned a lot from him. And really trying to, you know, a lot of autistic people do have very strong special interests and they you know, not always typical child interests, but that can be a great way in, finding out what's fun for that child. Um, you know, for example, play dates are oftentimes not terribly fun for an autistic child. Um, social interaction can be hard, it can be confusing. And they oftentimes need a little bit more time to themselves. So if a parent is like, this will be fun, let's go out and do interact with all these other kids in in a big noisy place, that's not fun for that child. So figuring out what really is fun for that child beyond what the parent thinks should be fun, or what was fun for the parent at that age, and really focusing on what are the interests of that child and what is fun for that child
0: based on how they react to it? It almost plays directly into the next question I had. Uh-huh. And I know I, I had talked a little bit to this person about this, so I have a little more in depth uh, insight to the question. But they said, Is there something they can do to kind of help their older child, is the uh, autistic of their young? They have two, uh, one younger, one older the older is autistic. And they said, you know, is there a way when the younger one wants to interact with him, he kind of just looks through them, like doesn't engage, doesn't, you know, like doesn't kind of, you know, play with their brother. Is there a way to overcome that?
1: Um, Yes, is is the short answer, but it's not easy. I mean, here's the thing. The, The sibling relationship is the longest relationship of your children's lives. And I think it's really, really important to recognize that and foster that. Um, because as a parent, I'm an older parent, I, you know, if all goes as it should, and there's no reason why it wouldn't, you know, my children will outlive me by 30, 40 years and they're gonna have each other. That doesn't mean that the sibling relationship is always evolving. For example, with my two sons, even though they're both autistic, the older one, has so many so much fewer support needs that he was sort of for all intents and purposes our neurotypical child. He, as a little guy he loved his little brother. They're four four and a half years apart. So he got an age difference there. He kind of insisted that his little brother would play with him. And his little brother was not interested but they found he was actually a fantastic therapist. He found a way that that his little brother liked to play with him. So my younger son, he loves horseplay. He's a sensory seeker, so being thrown around and <laughs> you know all that kind of roughhousing stuff, he loved. So that worked for them. It was a way that they connected. So finding a way that connects that that the younger child can connect, in the case you gave, can connect with his older sibling. It it may not be in a typical way, but you know what is the older sibling interested in. How can the younger sibling work his way in based on those interests? You know, and I don't know their ages and, and their developmental levels or anything like that. And then as they got older, you know, when my older son hit teenage years, there was such a huge age difference and developmental difference that they really had very little in common and didn't interact that much. That you know, it's just a change in the sibling relationship. Now that they are once again older, and as a 21-year-old, my son relates to his little brother much differently than he did as a 15-year-old, for example. So you just expect to see that sibling relationship change, and they're going to you know, go in and out of, of having a relationship. Among the things I would say is they're two very different children, and don't expect that, they're gonna, that you have to do the same with each child. Do what each child needs. Try and foster that relationship as much as you can, but don't force it. That's just going to create resentment. Um, Look for common interests, ways they can work with each other. One thing, and I don't know that this applies to all families, but for example, my younger son, he is the kid who does not care about the gift. He wants to rip the box. So so at Christmas, Hanukkah, birthdays, I would give him presents that I knew my older son would enjoy. So my older son, you know, my younger son got to rip the box, which thrilled him. My older son was allowed to use his brother's toy and that made him happy. (laughs) So it was kind of, here's a plus side of autism, you get more toys and finding ways to kind of make having an autistic sibling not a terrible thing. To, to find the bonuses and the positives in it is going to be hugely helpful. The other thing, particularly as they get older, is making it clear that you are not expecting the neurotypical child to be the caretaker or caregiver of the autistic child. That neurotypical child is entitled to their own life and to you know, go to university or go live on their own and, and to have their own life. They, they are not expected to you know they were not raised to be the caretaker of their sibling yeah there are also i'll just add real quickly there are some sibling support groups there's some online um, that you can google for the sib shops and we've done some sib shops as well and those are great things to look for it's just it can be really helpful for a sibling to have other siblings of other autistic kids to talk with because they can say things that they wouldn't necessarily say to their own parents
0: sure that absolutely makes sense and i think that is it's not always something that the parent like expects the younger child to be the caretaker but if you don't say it they might still feel that way
1: yes yes just and, and you know the child may make assumptions you know <laughs> so yeah. it's good to put that out there and let them know you know what you're working on to make sure that they get to live their own life and that may be for for an older child, you know. I don't know how young the siblings you mentioned were, but recognizing that, yeah, the sibling relationship when you have an autistic sibling is it's going to be different, but it doesn't mean that it can't be close in its own way. And definitely keep in mind that it's going to change throughout their lifespan. Sometimes they'll be closer, sometimes not.
0: Yeah, sure. And I mean, they're both in their single-digit years still, so yeah. they're very young. But it, it's one of those that I'm sure is just kind of heartbreaking as a parent is to see like your younger child really want to like spend time with their older sibling and not be able to find that connection.
1: Yeah. Helping that child find whatever connection there is, getting away from should again is, is very liberating and to say, okay, what does work for these kids? You know, what, what is a way into older brother? And, you know, even for short periods of time, maybe older brother needs more time to himself. Maybe younger brother is, is overwhelming to older brother. But how, you know, are there some points of connection? How can we get even a little bit in? And, and the main way is through common interests. What do they both in? You know, what is older brother interested in that younger brother can also be a part of?
0: Yeah, absolutely. The next question I had is not quite so personal, but is, I think, much more broad and could apply to a lot of people out there. Um, Are there any, you know, views on medication that can aid a child if they have any areas of struggle? Or as we in Oregon are very accustomed to now, you know, CBD studies are starting to become much more common and even some to some extent i'm sure thc studies across the board is there any you know kind of studies or views that are commonly used to help either young or old uh, people with autism kind of cope with things
1: okay so there are no specific medications for autism first right. of all but some the vast majority of autistic people something like 90 89 90% in addition to autism, have a co-occurring diagnosis and they are commonly things like ADD, ADHD, anxiety disorder, depressive disorder, um, bipolar disorder, Down syndrome, uh, sleep disorder, gut <laughs> issues. I mean, it, it runs the gamut and not everybody has all of these, of course, but it's very, it, it's very uncommon that an autistic person is only diagnosed with autism there's usually almost always a co-occurring diagnosis. And some of those co-occurring diagnoses can have medications that are commonly prescribed for them, you know, like ADD or or anxiety, for example. And those, you know, can help because everything is interconnected. What I like to say is that medication is just another tool in the toolbox. It's maybe not the first one you reach for, but it is there and it can be enormously helpful. I would very, very strongly urge people, you don't want to do these experiments on your own. You want to have them through a doctor. In Oregon, your primary care care doctor can be a naturopath, for example. But you you don't want to be doing these things on your own, um, including dietary changes, because you want to make sure that you're doing them in a way that you understand what affects the differences, different things you're trying or having on your child. Um, and then, you know, particularly with CBD and THC, and I know a lot of families who who use those, and some of them, you know, have had great success in in dealing with different concerns, but you want to go through your doctor, path, osteopath, whatever you're using, because you want to make sure that the dosages and the potency of what you're giving your child is standardized. You don't, the worst thing in the world would be to be using simply commercial CBD and it varies. And you don't, you know, the, the, the strength of the doses that you give them to your child varies. And you have a child who doesn't, you know, their body is not going to react as it should if they're not getting standardized dosages. So that's the main thing. But yeah, I think, you know, I like to say that, like I said, medication is another tool in the toolbox. And there's no shame or stigma that should be associated with that. My child also has a seizure disorder. My younger son, we would not give him medication for epilepsy. You know, and if he needed medication for, you know, things related to autism, we would definitely be looking into that as well
0: yeah, it speaks very much to our start of the conversation where, you know, if you know one autistic person, you know, one autistic person. So just like the rest of us, you know, there's medications that are going to help us day to day. And that's appropriate for us, but not necessarily for everyone.
1: And the other thing with medications is this, particularly with children, it can be super frustrating because it's so hard to find the right dosage. It's not like you say, okay, the, the seven-year-old weighs about a quarter of what an adult weighs, therefore he gets a quarter dosage. That's not how it works. So finding the right medication, finding the right dosage, it takes a lot of trial and error. And then what also makes it frustrating is that's going to change as the child grows. <laughs> you know, like, I wasn't kidding. Puberty changes everything, right? You know, their height, their weight, how they synthesize medications within their, their body chemistry changes. Yeah. So something that's been working for years, all of a sudden doesn't work anymore. And that's, that, that, there's just no way around it, trial and error and
0: frustration. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I know it's been a pleasure having you. And oh, I have no, enjoyed. Thank you for having me. Yes, absolutely. I have enjoyed our talk thoroughly. And I know putting this on the internet, if I don't ask a question that I don't want to give any airtime to, neither of us will ever hear the end of it. <laughs> okay. Um, but I know, for whatever reason, it very commonly comes up that people try to associate vaccines and autism.
1: Okay. okay, so one thing I do a lot in presentations is I have a slide about what causes autism, because I always get that question. And the best answer I have is, we don't know. There is no single accepted answer to what causes autism. And as I said, as an organization, we focus on helping people in the here and now. So we, we kind of sidestep that issue because it's not part of our mission. However, the the, the basic, I think the the uh, the commonly accepted, most commonly accepted view of what causes autism are is that there's a genetic component and there may be an environmental trigger on top of that. And what that environmental trigger is, is where all the controversy comes in. And there's many, many things that have been shown to correlate with autism, but not necessarily cause autism. In the case of vaccines, there was one celebrated study that purported to show a correlation not actually between the MMR vaccine and not actually autism, but with a stomach disorder that was associated with autism. That study has never been able to be replicated. This study has actually been withdrawn. I think the scientific literature has pretty much thoroughly debunked it, but it, it's still out there. And certainly there are children who have been injured by vaccines. That, you know, there's a whole vaccine injury court that deals with that um, and beyond autism for, for other effects as well so the scientific consensus as I understand it is that there is no correlation or causation between vaccines and autism but people do feel very strongly about that um, and, they, and like I say it is certainly possible that a child has been injured by vaccines but it tends to be a very very small percentage, and whether you can say that that injury was autism is extremely controversial. Yes,
0: absolutely. And that's all the time I'm ever going to give to that topic <laughs> okay. for the rest of and my I life. Say
1: my, my preference is to focus on what we can do to help.
0: Absolutely. And this,
1: than, yeah.
0: this is the place that I want to give you some time to kind of say, you know, hey, this is who we are, and this is how to reach us, and this is what, you know, we can help with. Right. So if you just kind of want to share... Share with people, sure. you know, how they can get a hold of you.
1: Absolutely. So like I said, best way is through our website, You get And there's, you know, ways to contact us through the website. You can also contact us by email. It's info, I-N-F-O, at autismsocietyoregon.org. same thing or you can call us Um, our local number is 503-636-1676 that's 503-636-1676 we do have a um, toll-free line which is 888 and then it's the word autism one so 888-a-u-t-i-s-m one and I'm forgetting what the numbers correspond to for that. And I apologize.
0: It, is, um, it has been so long since any of us used the, the old
1: phones.
0: <laughs> it's hard to remember.
1: Um, but, and, you know, most people have plans on their cell phone that, you know, even if they're dialing from out of state, you know, a 503 numbers and going to get them charged anyhow. Right. But like I say, we provide resources, education, systems advocacy, and support. We're, we're, here to help as best we can, and if it's not something that's that we do, we try to connect you with people who can help you. Um, and we, you know, we have different holiday programs and just try to have fun events for families because, you know, interacting in the community can, it can feel very isolated when it's an autistic person or a parent of an autistic child. So we, we try and make community events that are autism friendly. Um, we have our, our programs for, uh, I don't want to call them respite because respite has a specific definition, but these are evening outs to relax and recharge um, through our take a break and take a breather programs. Um, and, you know, we don't charge for any of our services. You don't, and I should maybe clear you don't need a formal diagnosis to access our services. And there's no membership fees. They'll, they'll help as best we can.
0: Yes. And thank you so much for doing that. And thank you for doing this interview.
1: Absolutely. Thank you for having me. I enjoyed doing it.
0: I hope you have a great rest of your day.
1: Thank you. You too. Take
0: care. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Just Dumb Enough podcast. If you enjoyed yourself, please tell your friends, subscribe, or leave a review. Any little thing you can do for the show means the world to me. As I said at the top, shoot me an email at dumbenoughpodcast at gmail.com if you want me to read your question and answer it in the 25th episode celebration. The Patreon also exists if anyone out there wants to fund my push to full-time podcasting so I can exclusively work on getting these episodes out even more often. I got quite a year of promos ahead of me so if you want to catch me on any of my stops across the U.S. that would be pretty cool. So far, I have New Orleans, the 11th to the 16th of January, Austin Tejas, the 12th to the 15th of February, hopefully, unless that gets pushed out by anything. And that's Texas, just in case you don't recognize what I'm doing here. And Atlanta, Georgia, the 9th to the 14th of March. So if you're in or near any of those areas, hit me up and let's do something fun. I had a lot of fun with a crew down in Florida back in November, and I'd love to meet more listeners. I'm sure I'm forgetting things, but my brain hurts, and it's 7am, so it's probably time for me to crash for a couple hours at least before work. Oh, um, oh, I know, I know what it is. Okay. I'm starting a leaderboard for every episode's show notes that uh, lists my top listening countries. So I got an enormous response after the episode last week where Australia took over the number two slot and apparently neither Canada nor the UK were pleased about this because their viewership skyrocketed after that episode went live. So drumroll, please. No, wait, I'm the only one that edits these. and I don't know how to do that. Anyway, the top five are the United States, Canada, the United Kingdom, Australia, and the Ukraine. Although, Ukraine, you are sliding, because there are a number of countries coming up right behind you, so use it or lose it, baby. Good luck winning the listenership war, everyone. It's super duper close right now. I'll see you on the next episode. Bye bye